The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Well, let me join my voice with the many others that have said Happy Mother's Day to all the mothers among us. We're so glad you're here this morning. Would you join me as we pray and ask the Lord for help as we open his word? Father in heaven, we want to see you more clearly this morning. We want to open your word and get insight and understanding so that we would love you more and become more like you. So work now through the power of your spirit and through the preached word for your glory and for our everlasting joy. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Last week, Andy Nacelli guided us through the first 19 verses of Daniel chapter 9, and he shared five ways that Daniel models corporate confession. And this morning, we get the latter half of Daniel, verses 20 to 27, which gives us how God responds to Daniel's prayer. Now, as you heard the passage read, you're probably wondering, how does this intersect with Mother's Day? I'm not entirely sure. We'll find out at the end. This passage is considered one of the most difficult, most complex, most disputed, most controversial, and most misunderstood passages in the entire Bible. One, common, uh, one commentary Describe the final verses of Daniel 9 as this. It's a bewildering maze, so many choices of ways to take, so many blind alleys and dead ends. In particular, the 70 weeks in verses 24 to 27 have generated no shortage of controversy, interpretations, and views, and speculation. So my aim for us this morning is just really simple. We're going to focus in on the things that are clear so that we might see rightly in order to worship rightly. I want us to see rightly this morning so that we would worship rightly and find hope in this passage. And yes, we're going to get into the details, into the weeds of the passage, but we're not going to stay there. We're going to zoom back out and see God's hand of sovereignty over the whole thing. And I think... That's in some ways how it intersects with Mother's Day this morning. Moms need a deep hope. All parents, these parents that dedicated their children this morning, they don't need shallow, trite words of encouragement. They need deep, robust hope for a lifetime of parenting children with all the joys and the heartaches that will come. And I believe that our passage this morning has deep hope a wellspring of hope for all of us, whatever we might be facing. Let me just remind us once again of why we study passages like this when many other churches or pastors might just skip it over. You know, let's come to something a little bit more easy. And we think of Romans 15, 4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction so that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. That's my aim this morning. The scriptures bring us hope when we set our minds to them to try to understand the depth of what they have for us. And so you will need to put on your thinking cap this morning and track with me as we look at this passage. Now, 
Speaking of hope, the context for this passage of Daniel 9 is diminishing hope. The Israelites, their hope bucket has sprung a leak, and it's been leaking for six decades, almost seven decades. They've been in exile. Their city, Jerusalem, has been destroyed. The temple has been destroyed. All the young men have been brought out into exile. That's Daniel. He's an old man now. And and they're asking the question, God, when are you going to fulfill your promise? They're asking the question, is God still sovereign? Because it sure doesn't look and feel like it this morning. As they see God's hand at work in Babylon and Medo-Persia, and perhaps that's where some of us are at this morning. Our hope buckets, if you will, are leaking. We're fatigued, we're weighed down, we're anxious about the future. And perhaps this morning you're wondering, is God still good? Is God still sovereign? Is he still seated on his throne? And if you're asking that question, if you've wondered that this week, I think we have a word of encouragement, a word of hope for you this morning. So last week, We saw Daniel's prayer that was a result of him studying the book of Jeremiah. And he saw that the exile was going to last only 70 years. And if they prayed and if they confessed, God would restore them. And so he prayed in those 19 verses. And in our passage this morning, we see God's response to Daniel's prayer for forgiveness and restoration. And what kind of answer does God give him? As you heard 20 to 27 read out, How would you summarize that? What's God's answer? It's not immediately clear, is it? I think it's this. God is giving Daniel an unlikely answer to his prayer. Daniel wants to know, are we going to get out of exile and get to restore the city of Jerusalem and restore the temple? And what God gives him is not just the immediate short-term future, But he tells them about his sovereign power all the way, not just to the end of the exile, but all the way to the end of human history. He says it's going to be that much better than what you're even hoping right now. God responds to Daniel's prayer, not only of reassuring him of his sovereign hand in the immediate things, but pointing all the way to the consummation of all things so that he might have hope. It's like one of your kids that say, dad, dad, can you buy me a car? You know, he wants to know right now, like when I turn 16, can I get my license? When I get to 15, can I get my permit right away? And you say to him, son, you're going to inherit all that I have. In a sense, there's this going on. Daniel wants to know what's going on right now. You know, the 70 years are almost up and God says, Oh, there's so much more I want to show you for your hope and encouragement. So uh, the, the aim of this is to reassure us of God's sovereignty. So look with me in verses 20 to 23. We're going to study this passage in two main parts. There's going to be a timely answer to prayer in verses 20 to 23. And then we're going to get a hopeful answer to prayer in 24 to 27. So look with me at verses 20 and 21. While I was speaking and praying. So Daniel's speaking, he's praying, and he says, Confessing my sin and the sin of my people, Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God. Verse 21. He repeats this again. While I was speaking in prayer, 
He's emphasizing something. The man, Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, an angel, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. What I think Daniel is trying to communicate to us is that while the words are still coming out of his mouth, Gabriel shows up to answer his prayer. God gives a timely answer to prayer. Now, what what do we learn from that? Many of us wait months, years, perhaps even decades for answers to some of our prayers. Some of us will not see answers to our prayers on this side of heaven. So, so what can we learn from this? I think Daniel's, even though Daniel's experience isn't our common experience, that while the words are still coming out of our mouth, the answer already comes. Don't miss the broader truth that's in view here which is that God hears and answers the prayers of his people. Daniel prays in response to God's word in Jeremiah, and God sends a messenger right away. And so we ought to conclude this morning, we ought to pray all the more. Sometimes we, our, our logic just isn't the way that the scripture's logic works. We think if God knows what I need, and he's able to do it, then why should I even pray at all? That's where probably most of us live. Like, you already know, and you can do it, and yet you haven't, and so I'm just going to grow discouraged and stop praying. And yet the better question is, if God knows what I need, and he's able to answer, why don't we pray all the more? Why are we not more earnest in praying? And the scriptures tell us we do not have because we do not ask. And so let me encourage us this morning, whatever you're facing, whether it's exile and discouragement like Daniel or another problem, let's be a people that prays. This opening section is teaching us that even if we don't get an answer right away, God is teaching us through the waiting and don't mistake in God's timing as him not caring. Isaiah 65, 24 says this, before they call, I will answer. And while they are yet speaking, I will hear. And that's exactly what we see in this opening section of Daniel. Now, go with me to verse 22. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved, Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Notice the repetition of the word understand or understanding three different times. So whatever is unclear in the next four verses, it's for this, that we might have some level of understanding. And then notice at the end of verse 23, Gabriel says to Daniel, you are greatly loved. We're going to talk about this more next week. It shows up two more times in chapter 10 where Gabriel is telling Daniel, you're greatly loved. But just in this beginning section, I want us to see that God gives Daniel a timely answer. And this timely answer is to give him insight and understanding because he is loved by the God of heaven and earth. And this word this morning, the words that I speak this morning for you, are to give you insight and understanding because you all, we all, are greatly loved by the God of the universe. 
So look with me at verses 24 to 27. Here is God's hopeful answer to prayer. So let me just give you the framework real quick. Verse 24 is a summary statement of everything that will be accomplished in this 70 weeks. And we're going to get back to the 70 weeks later. And then in verses 25 to 27, he divides that 70 weeks into three periods of time. There's seven weeks. You can see that in verse 25. Then there's 62 weeks, again in verse 25 in the beginning of 26. And then a final 70th week. Now, Look with me at verse 24. It says, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Now, if you have an ESV Bible, a paper one, you can see that there's a footnote at the end of weeks that says 77s. It could be the word seven, which plays off of Jeremiah 25, where he talked about 70 years of exile. And so many understand and interpret this 77s or 70 weeks to be seven times, 70 times seven, which results in 490 years. So there are three main views of how to interpret what this 77s, which is 490, and what it means. Let me give you the three main views. The first view suggests that these are a literal 490 years that span from Jeremiah's prophecy or to the destruction of the temple by Babylon all the way to Antiochus Epiphanes in 175 to 164 BC of the Greek Empire. Now, I think this one is unlikely. The second view suggests that these are 490 literal years, again, that span from Artaxerxes' decree in Ezra, Ezra chapter 7, to the death and resurrection of Jesus. So they're thinking of literal 490 years around this period of time that ends with Jesus his death and resurrection. The third view, which is the one that I take, suggests that these are 490 figurative or symbolic years, so not literal years, that span from Daniel's time all the way to Cyrus's decree and then to the time of Christ and then to Christ's second coming, the consummation of all things. And I'm going to give you a bunch of arguments of why I think this third view is the right understanding. And it's okay if you disagree with me, you can send emails to Pastor Dan. No, you can send them to me. (laughs) I think understanding these 490 years symbolically, because we're reading prophetic, apocalyptic literature, and it fits best with everything else we've seen in Daniel. So let me just give us a few different arguments for why. So the number seven is often used in the Bible as signifying completion or perfection. So Daniel three nineteen earlier in our book, it said the furnace was heated how hot? Seven times as hot. Now, it, it, was it literally they took the temperature and said, let's crank it up exactly seven times? No, they're saying they got it really hot. It got it as hot as possible. Or in Daniel four sixteen. Nebuchadnezzar lived as a wild animal for seven periods of time. It could be seven years, but he doesn't use the word years there because he wants us to think it's the full, completed, perfect amount of time for Daniel, or I mean for Nebuchadnezzar to be a wild animal there. Or we'll notice throughout the scriptures, God created the world in six days and then rested on the seventh. In Revelation, 
There are seven churches and seven seals and seven angels and seven trumpets and seven plagues and seven golden bowls of wrath. These could be literal sevens, but I think they're symbolic of perfection or completion. Another example is when Jesus tells Peter, or Peter says to Jesus, should I forgive my brother seven times? And Jesus says, what? No, 77 times or 70 times seven, meaning not just counted out 77 times. Oh, 78th or 490th, if it's 70 times seven, he's saying you should always be ready to forgive. So I think the picture here is seven is a symbolic number. Additionally, I think the number 10 is often used to signify fullness, very similar to completion or perfection, but fullness. So Daniel and his friends were tested for 10 days in chapter one. And afterwards, how much more bright, how much smarter were they? They were 10 times. Is it that their IQs were exactly 10 times as much? Well, no, it's fullness is being communicated there. Or in Daniel 7, we saw 10 horns. We saw 10,000 times 10,000 standing before the ancient of days. In Exodus, we have 10 plagues. We have 10 commandments at Mount Sinai. So I think this idea of fullness, of completion, is being pictured here. And so 7 times 10 times 7 is 490. And so I think we're supposed to understand this symbolically. It's, It's simple math. You don't have to pull out your calculator or anything. And let, let me point out one other kind of example that I think argues for this. In Leviticus 25 verse 8, it talks about the year of Jubilee, which takes place every 49 years. Seven times seven is 49. And it says, you shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. And I think what Daniel in 924 is picturing for us is not just that there's, after 49 years, there's going to be this year of jubilee where everything's freed, all the debts are forgiven, everyone returns back to their property, but there's going to be this ultimate tenfold jubilee of 490 years. And yet it's symbolic. I, I think another argument for this is that this understanding fits best with what we saw in Daniel 2, and Daniel 7. So remember in Daniel 2, Nebuchadnezzar gets this dream. He sees this golden statue, uh, golden head, silver, bronze, iron, and ore, and, and the stone comes and smashes this statue. And then this stone, which is Jesus, the cornerstone, the stone that the builders rejected, grows into this massive mountain, and it's the establishment of God's everlasting kingdom. And it fast forwards all the way to the consummation of all things. I think the same thing is happening in chapter 7, where Daniel gets this vision of four beasts. And then what happens? The Ancient of Days comes, and he rides in on his chariot. He opens the books of judgment, judges all, gives the kingdom to the Son of Man. And then there's the establishment of God's everlasting kingdom once again. And so I think in that same way, Daniel 9, 24 to 27, is picturing for us this very same thing. From Daniel's time all the way to the consummation of the kingdom at Christ's second coming. Now, look with me back at verse 24. He gives us six results that come about from these symbolic 490 years. First, it's to finish the transgression. So when is sin 
going to go forward and then finally stop, I think it's at the final judgment of Christ's second coming. Same thing with the second one, to put an end to sin. I think sin is put to end when Christ comes, opens the judgment books, and puts an end to all sin. And then to atone for iniquity. This word atone means the removal or forgiveness of sins. And this atonement, I believe, takes place at the cross of Christ. To bring in everlasting righteousness, which is the final inbreaking of God's everlasting kingdom and the imputation of Christ's righteousness to all his people. And then to seal both vision and prophet. And I think this is saying basically this prophecy is going to take place. It's guaranteed and you're going to roll it up and then put a wax seal on it like, like a notary to show that this is authenticated. It's from God. And then finally to anoint a most holy place. And so in the Old Testament, the tabernacle or the temple was God's holy place. And there was the Holy of Holies. But we know when Jesus came, the curtain was torn from top to bottom. And there was no more need for the Holy of Holies because Jesus is now the anointed one. And then in the new heavens and new earth, in Revelation 21 and 22, there will be no need for temple because God will be in the midst of his people. And so I think what we see in verse 24 is these six results of this span of time has already begun in Christ's death and resurrection, and it's pointing forward all the way until Christ returns at his second coming. We're going to come back to talk more about that. Now, look with me at verses 25 to 27. We see this passage divided up into three periods of time. The first period. Know therefore... Verse 25, know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. The question is, what's the word that goes out and who's the prince? So I understand this word to restore and build Jerusalem to refer to King Cyrus of Persia, who issued a decree to allow the Israelites to return. So If you have your Bible, turn with me to Ezra chapter 1. And if you don't know where Ezra is, there's the first five books. And then there is 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles, and then you get Ezra. And Ezra and Nehemiah is around the time after the exile as they're rebuilding the city. So turn to Ezra chapter 1. I want us to see this because this is amazing how God's word coheres together. These are not just a bunch of random writings that don't talk about real things. So, we see Cyrus, the Persian, also known as Darius, putting out a decree. He's the ruler of the Medes and Persians. This is after the fall of Babylon. And then Ezra chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. So, again, referencing back to what Daniel read, Jeremiah 25, Jeremiah 29. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation or a decree throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. And then verse two, it says, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. 
Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. So this is really amazing. Daniel reads Jeremiah and says, the 70 years are almost up. He prays. He's asking God. God says, I'm going to fulfill it. And then we read in Ezra 1, God indeed fulfills it. This was also prophesied in Isaiah, Isaiah 45, 13. It was prophesied and it says this, I have stirred up, speaking of Cyrus, I have stirred Cyrus up in righteousness and I will make all his ways level and he shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward. If you don't see it, I hope you will, by the end of this sermon, see it. God's power is so great, so glorious, that he stirs up the heart of a pagan king to release his people and to rebuild his temple because God is sovereignly ruling over all things. There's nothing outside of his power. No president, no king, no nation is outside of his rule and reign. He says, I'm going to do what I want to do. And no one can stand in my way. And our God is good and gracious. The whole point of everything here is pushing towards the consummation of all things where we will be with Jesus forever. And there will be no more tears, no more heartache, no more pain, no more wars. But we will dwell with him forever. Now, the anointed one, The prince, in reference in verse 25, I think is referring to Ezra, who was both a priest and a teacher and a leader of the people. And it says that the hand of the Lord was on him. Now, in the second period, you can see that in kind of verse 25, it says, Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and a moat, but in a troubled Time. So I think this is 434 roughly symbolic years. When it's symbolic, it really doesn't matter how many years. But there's the 62 weeks, which is, I think, a long period of time. And this second period likely refers from the time of Nehemiah until the time of Jesus, where there was little prophetic guidance. So it was a troubled time. And there was much persecution of God's people faced under the Greek Empire as well as the Roman Empire. And now the third period is one week or seven symbolic years, which is divided in half and where the rest of this passage takes place. So look with me at verse 26. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary and its end shall come with a flood and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week and for half of the week. He shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. I know for some of you, your eyes glazed over when I was reading that. Just stick with me. What in the world is going on in this final period of time? I think this final week or seven years, or symbolic number of time, is where a lot happens, and it spans Jesus' life, death, and resurrection all the way until his second coming. 
So it says, the anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. I think this is speaking of Jesus his betrayal, he was abandoned, and he was crucified. Isaiah 53, 8 says he was cut off. Same language there. He was cut off out of the land of the living. And then where it says, the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. So Daniel was talking about the restoration of Jeremiah and the temple, and it was indeed restored. But then in the days of Jesus, shortly after his death in AD 70, The temple was destroyed once again. So I think the people refers to the Romans, and the prince is Titus Vespasian, who destroyed the city of Jerusalem and the temple in A.D. 70. And then it says, Its end shall come with a flood, or speedily like a flood, and to the end there shall be war. I think this is referring to the siege of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, where the temple was burned. And then in verse 27, it says, And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. Now, to understand this, it gets a little bit tricky because the antecedent of the he seems to refer immediately back to the preceding sentence, which was referring to the people of the prince. And so some people think it refers to the prince. But the subject of that sentence is the people, And so it couldn't be a he, and I think it goes all the way back formerly to where it references the anointed one that shall be cut off. So I think it's referring to Jesus. And Jesus is the one, the anointed one, who makes a new covenant by his blood. So makes a strong covenant with many. Isaiah 53, 11 says he was made many to be accounted righteous. And so I think this is, again, pointing to Jesus, who puts an end to sacrifice and offering by his blood. There is no more need. And then now, at the end of verse 27, it says, On the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. I think this refers to a person the one who destroyed the city and sanctuary in A.D. 70, so namely the Roman general Titus Vespasian, but also prefigures the Antichrist that will rise up in the end, persecute God's people, and be ultimately destroyed. So let me just back up from the weeds and look at the big picture. Gabriel tells Daniel, your prayer has been answered. God loves you. And he's heard your prayer and he sent me right away so that I could come and give you insight. And he says, you're really tied up and concerned about the end of these 70 years and the people of Israel getting to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city and rebuild the temple. And that's good and right. And and so let me tell you that indeed will happen. But let me tell you so much more. God is going to come back and forgive sins. You're you're confessing your sins, corporate repentance right now, but there will be a greater corporate repentance that takes place because all of us will be bound up in Jesus. And as we confess our sins, he's going to be faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness because of this one who is coming, the anointed one, the holy one, Jesus Christ will put an end to sin, to atone for iniquities. And he is coming back and he will establish his ever lasting kingdom. And so you're so tied up with the short term, but don't forget to see all the way to the end where Jesus reigns over all things. God conquers all and he's over all things forever. And he is sovereign. Amen.
Now, let me draw out just a few applications for us. What this passage does for us is it confirms God's meticulous control over human history. And so first, I want to encourage us to see God's grace. See how gracious God is in answering Daniel's prayer. Daniel says, I want this much of an answer. And God says, I'm giving you so much more. And the reason it's written down for Daniel and for us is that everyone who would read this in all future generations wouldn't say, oh, look, God answered Daniel's prayer. Yeah, you know, they got out of exile and that's all in the past. And, you know, it's just a history lesson. No, there are words yet to be fulfilled that will be fulfilled because God is sovereign. And so see God's grace. God reassures, lovingly reassures all of the readers of Daniel from now until Christ's second coming of his meticulous and sovereign care over all the affairs of man. And so whatever is going out of control in your life, he sees it. If you pray, he will answer. And he loves you if you're in Christ. Any of us feeling any uncertainty, any anxiety, any fear? I'm sure none of us are. But if, in case we are, we have a good word from the Lord Jesus Christ and from the sovereign God. Second thing, this doesn't come explicitly from this passage, but I think it's an apt application for us, which is we, we can laugh in the face of fear and anxiety. Daniel was crying out in repentance, and that was good and right. And yet, like Daniel, we can walk by faith, trust in God, and even laugh in the face of opposition. The mark of a mature Christian, I think, is being able to laugh when the wicked scheme. Here, Psalm 52, 6. It says, the righteous shall see and fear. This is speaking of God punishing the wicked and shall laugh at him. Now, we don't need to fret about our futures, but we look to Christ, we labor in the strength that he gives, and we don't need to fear and fret, and we can even laugh about the things that happen around us. And third, I want us to hope in God. Daniel, God gives Daniel a wellspring of hope that we get to draw upon this morning, that we have an unfading joy, an everlasting kingdom. And so I think of the moms among us this morning. Being a mom, being a dad, being parents is not an easy job. The the pregnancy is not easy. The giving birth, oh, definitely is not easy. The, The nursing is not easy. The sleepless nights are not easy. And then everyone tells us, to my discouragement, it gets harder when they get older. Because then you get like adult children that can actually do what they want and make all these bad decisions or just disagree with you because they're adults, right? And, And so... Uh, I I thought the young years were hard and everyone tells me the the older years get harder. And and so moms and dads need lots of encouragement. There's lots of stressors, lots of griefs, lots of loss. Living as a Christian in this world, in this life is hard. It's, It's not easy. Very often we don't laugh, do we? And yet set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We set our hope on an eternal, unfading, indestructible hope. And that's why God gives 
Gabriel this message to give Daniel so that it would be passed on for all generations so that we would look and say, God didn't just answer that prayer, but he's going to answer all of our prayers in the most magnificent, wonderful, glorious way in the last days. Christian, you are one day closer to eternity in heaven. Don't ever forget that. Your suffering is not in vain. Endure and you're one day closer to gazing upon the face of our Savior who says, I love you. So the main point of Daniel 9, 20 to 27, is that God's sovereign hand is over the immediate future. Yes, And it's over all things, the consummation of all things. So nothing is beyond God's power and wisdom. Exile, not a problem for a sovereign God. Trouble in the future, not a problem for the sovereign God. The destruction of Jerusalem and of the temple, not a problem. The redestruction of Jerusalem and the temple, not a problem. The siege of Jerusalem is not a problem. Wars and destruction is not a problem. Abominations and desolations and even the Antichrist that rises up and persecutes and wears out God's people is not a problem for our God. Nothing in our culture, nothing in our world, nothing in our country, nothing in your lives, nothing in your family, nothing in the darkness of soul of your heart is too much, too great a problem for the sovereign, providential, gloriously working God who fulfills his covenant to his people. God will indeed see his people through every trial, every suffering, and has already ordained our victory. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Oh Lord, I'm eager to see your word go forth in your power, by the power of your spirit, for the encouragement of your people. And so do that, Father. We want to see you more clearly and live and walk and sing with the hope that comes only from Jesus Christ. Help us to love you more. And even those who are here this morning who do not know you, that they would trust you with all of their heart, mind, soul, and strength. Be pleased to save even this day. And a special blessing over our moms this morning, Lord. Give them a wellspring of hope in Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720-13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.